so, wow, I didn't know that I was going to be required to do a dance move, so I did not prepare that this morning. Um, good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you here this morning, um, and it's an honor to provide another installment of this great series, Can You Dig It? I've definitely been digging it this summer. And one of the cool things about this, you know, cool because that's the generation I came from, is that it's made it cool again to say the word groovy. Now, every time I say the word groovy, my kids cringe. But for one last Sunday, I can say it as much as I want. And, uh, you know, the other thing is, as Pastor Brad mentioned, I have the honor of kind of bringing the last full installment of this series. It's been a great summer, a great summer of reflecting on the summer of love, the original summer of love, and of course, uh, you know, we're, we have a, an anniversary that we're celebrating, and of course, this year is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, which is also pretty cool and groovy. Um, the other thing that's been cool about this summer, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this, is that our very own team from Walla Walla is representing the Northwest in the Little League World Series. Isn't that something? 16 teams from all across the globe have the honor of being in Williamsport, uh, Pennsylvania for this event. And uh, yesterday, it was really cool, in that, uh, I think it was in the fifth inning, that our very own Keegan Weston hit a triple and ended up scoring the go-ahead run 4-3 to three, uh, against South Dakota, who was representing the Midwest. So that's really cool. We're, we're really rooting for them, and that's really something uh, that we can be proud of here in our valley. Um, so having said that, and what Brad mentioned, I know what's on everyone's minds this morning, and pun intended, it may eclipse everything that we're going to talk about this morning. That's because for the first time since 1979, there's going to be a total solar eclipse. That's groovy. Now, it's been all the buzz over the last several months, and it's dominated the news in the last several weeks. People are flocking by the hundreds of thousands, millions actually, to this small piece of real estate in this path through the continental United States in this path of totality to, to see this eclipse. Now, wouldn't you know it, but one of the prime locations is just a few hours south of us in central and northeastern Oregon. Wow, that's pretty groovy. I've heard that even celebrities are making plans to go to Oregon for this viewing of this eclipse. So, that's the good part. The bad part is that it has some first responders and, and local officials and local business owners kind of worried about whether or not they're going to have the infrastructure in the middle of nowhere, these little towns in the middle of nowhere that are housing millions of people, uh, to handle all this. Now, highways have already become parking lots. In fact, this is, I think, a picture from Thursday. Thursday, trying to get out of town into Oregon and see the eclipse. So if you're thinking you were going to the path of totality, I hope that you can grow wings and fly. Campgrounds and hotels are already booked out. They've been inundated to more than capacity. In fact, I heard a report that in Madras, Oregon, you can't get gas. You just can't get it. And uh, local restaurants running out of food, stores running out of resources. Now, this might seem to be a, a nice shot in the arm for the local economy and the local community, but there's also that increased concern of damages, 
You know, with people camping, there's wildfire concerns, and that's something that's definitely a concern in our part of the country in this, this time of year. But, you know, with the state of the world, too, you think about rioting and injury, and based on the news reports from this past week, even maybe terrorism. And uh, I kind of wonder, was this what it was like all those years ago during Woodstock in 1969? Hmm. And inevitably, there are also those who are pointing to this eclipse as containing some religious or prophetic experience, or significance, sparking renewed interest in the end times, that the end is near. Of course, whenever there's going to be a cosmic or astrological event, someone's going to jump on that with their own prediction of doom and gloom. But regardless... There is some sense that this almost feels post-apocalyptic. Now, that's interesting. Because today we will be spending one more Sunday discussing the part of theology that we call eschatology. And people have traditionally thought of eschatology as being all about the end times. It comes from the, the Greek word eschaton, which means the end. But it also means the fulfillment It also means the conclusion. It also means the completion. And serious students of the Bible recognize that eschatology, this branch of theology, isn't just all about the end, but it's actually about the fulfillment. It's about the completion. It's about the point of it all. So, rightly understood, every part of our Bible is eschatological. In other words, it's all pointing somewhere, and it's all going somewhere. There is a destination and a purpose in history and events. Now, last week, Pastor Brad spoke on the first installment of this subject about this welcome interruption, where Jesus would return to the earth and fulfill all the promises that are in the Bible. And this is where it gets pretty interesting when you study eschatology, the the end times, because everybody has a different viewpoint on how it's all going to turn out. And none of us really know because it hasn't happened yet. You've got historical premillennialism. You've got dispensational premillennialism. You can't even say that. You've got postmillennialism, and you've got amillennialism. And, of course, there's panmillennialism that says everything's just going to pan out in the end. And there's also different viewpoints of of, uh, what's going to happen to us when we die. Or when or if a rapture will occur where Jesus takes all of his followers into heaven. Or what's judgment going to be like? What's heaven going to be like? What's hell going to be like? Is there a hell? Or (laughs) you name it, people are debating about it. In fact, there are some people that would even quibble over what carrot of gold do you think the streets in heaven are made out of? Or what are the exact dimensions of the new temple and the new Jerusalem going to be? You name it, people have a different opinion. So providing another installment about this subject could take on a life of its own. It could go all kinds of different ways with all kinds of rabbit trails. And Pastor Brad's message last week that Jesus is coming back and Jesus is coming back soon, however, is not one of those ones that there's different opinions about. Everybody who's a serious student of the Bible agrees that Jesus is coming back and Jesus is coming back soon. Likewise, this morning, I'm going to present to you a topic that no matter what camp you're in, no matter what viewpoint you have, you can hang your head on this. 
quite literally hang your hat on this. It's a part of theology that we call the future state. That means what happens after Jesus comes back. And it has to do with the resurrection to eternal life. The Bible refers to this as the resurrection of the dead. In saying resurrection of the dead, we're talking about people who have been long dead and literally have their body resurrected and remade into a real physical body. Groovy. And for you movie buffs out there, that brings to mind that old movie, The Princess Bride. And near the end of the movie, Fezzik and Inigo, they take the main character, Wesley, to see Miracle Max. And they needed Miracle Max to work a miracle. They needed Miracle Max to bring Wesley back to life. And Miracle Max told them that your timing was critical because there's still hope for Wesley. You see, he's only mostly dead. (laughs) Of course, it is a comedy, so Inigo says, well, (laughs) Max, um, what would you have done if he was all dead? Well, if he's all dead, there's only one thing you can do. What's that? Well, look through his clothes for loose change. But resurrection isn't reviving someone. It's literally bringing back somebody who is really all dead. And tying that into the eclipse and mass hysteria and the summer of love, I have to mention that George Romero, the original creator of the 1968 Night of the Living Dead, passed away last month. George Romero, he uh, inspired a whole genre and renewed interest in this idea of the living dead, also known as zombies. Now, Romero was Max Brooks's hero. Max Brooks went on to write the novel that inspired the more recent film, World War Z, about the zombie virus that spread around the globe. And now the American Movie Classics channel, the AMC channel, they've deviated from their model of just showing these old movies, and they've created some of their own original series. One in recent times is The Walking Dead, which is a series about the zombie apocalypse set in the Atlanta, Georgia area. That's funny because I was actually in Atlanta, Georgia this week on a business trip, and there are no zombies there. At least, not yet. So, this fascination with such phenomena is nothing new. It's just another variation of the the same fascination that seems to have overcome Halloween for hundreds of years. You've got these uh, people who think about Frankenstein's monster or, or vampires or other monsters. And we've seen literature and films about these so-called supposedly immortal creatures ever since we can remember. And it doesn't seem to be dying out, does it? People in our culture romanticize this idea of these immortal vampires. They've made a Hollywood powerhouse out of the Twilight franchise, which, not in my notes, but is the most plotless um, (laughs) thing I've ever seen. So... More recently, um, author Justin Cronin combined ideas of a military conspiracy 
in this post-apocalyptic world that features an ongoing struggle for the survival of the human race against the infamous vampire viral strain. And it was his trilogy, The Passage. He's got three major books, best-selling author. And I hear that they are, have already made this, they've made deals to make this into a TV series that's going to premiere in 2018. Groovy. So why is there such a fascination with these creatures? The undead or immortal creatures such as vampires. Well, this is just a thought. But I propose that it's because there's something inside of people that wonders deeply about what is life going to be like after we die. What really happens to us when we die? Do we simply just die? Or is there something else? I think many people, regardless of how religious they are or aren't, would like to believe that there is life after death. And for some, even a distorted or perverted or incomplete semblance of life after death, that seems more appealing than nothing at all. So what does the Bible have to say about this? Well, quite a bit, as it turns out. In fact, there are dozens of detailed accounts about what's going to happen to us after we die. And we're going to focus on one of those this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, you want to turn in your device, we're going to be reading from uh, 1 Corinthians. We're going to be reading from uh, chapter 15. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 32. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 12 through 32. And here's a a case of the Apostle Paul. He's, He's talking to the believers in the Greek city of Corinth. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 32. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Jesus, or Christ, from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be Destroyed is death. 
for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, Paul had a lot to say about this issue. And there was a lot going on that he was addressing in this passage. We won't talk about every single issue that he brought up. But one thing we need to understand is one of the, the, the main concerns that he had was to clearly present the gospel, the good news that Jesus had come and came to earth to die for the sins of the world and freely offered reconciliation to God. And not only did he die... But he was also buried. And then he miraculously rose to life again. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Now the good folks at First Corinthian Church, they had already accepted the gospel. His message was most welcome in their church. You might actually say that when it came to the gospel, you know, he he was preaching to the choir. They were tracking with him. He had them at hello. But there were some in the Corinthian church who were using their intellectual powers of Greek thought and logic. And they said, resurrection of the dead? There's no such thing. And in a summer of love nod to the Dewey brothers, they were just all right with Jesus rising from the dead. After all, he's Jesus. Jesus. He's God. Of course he rose from the dead. But as for the rest of all of us, well, we haven't seen that happen around these parts. And also their revered professor Plato, he had taught them that there was a separate spirit world and a separate physical world. And they don't ever touch. Because you see, the spiritual is good. But the physical, bad. You know, that's still a prevailing belief in our world today. It reminds me of the classic 1969 song by Norm Greenbaum, Spirit in the Sky, which says, of course, when I die and they lay me to rest, gonna go to the place that's the best. When I lay me down to die, going up to the spirit in the sky, Going up to the spirit in the sky. You can hear the backup singers now too, right? That's where I'm going when I die. When I die and they lay me to rest, going to go to the place that's the best. But Paul would point out it doesn't end like that. And he actually pointed out the fallacy in their thinking. And the cool thing was he used their own philosophical constructs of logic to do it. 
He played detective with them. And it went something like this. Jesus is God, right? And they answer, oh, yes. Hmm. Jesus is also fully human too, right? And they answer, yes, sir. And Jesus was resurrected from the dead? That's right. Then there is such a thing as a resurrection of the dead. Um, God, gotcha, right? He was telling them that it can't be any other way. You see, if Jesus rose from the dead, then there has to be such a thing as resurrection of the dead. Paul went on to say that if there is no such thing as resurrection of the dead, then Jesus wouldn't have been raised either. Which would mean that he's still in a tomb somewhere in the greater Jerusalem area, and he's still dead. And if that's true, then why are we here? Why are we here doing church? If that's true, why are we worshiping a God who's dead, who lied to us? You see, if all we have are these warm, fuzzy, think, think, uh, warm fuzzies about Jesus, the long-deceased, eccentric preacher, then that's really, really sad. And if that was the case, we'd be better off going out and partying, making this one life count. And in a reference to Isaiah 22.13, Paul tells the Corinthians, okay, if that's true, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then go ahead and eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. But fortunately, that's not what our faith is based on. Paul was telling his Corinthian friends that you can't believe in the gospel without also believing that we, as his followers, will also be resurrected to eternal life. You see, the gospel is incomplete and it's actually impossible without also believing that we will be resurrected to eternal life. And for your notes this morning, this is the big idea. Because Jesus was raised from the dead to eternal life, so also will everyone who puts their trust in him. Because Jesus was raised from the dead to eternal life, so also will everyone who puts their trust in him. That's a groovy truth, isn't it? Can you dig it? It means that we have a future. (laughs) Not just any future, but a great future and a certain future. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's famous line in all of his movies was, I'll be back, right? Well, what the Bible is telling us is that we'll be back. And breaking that down, this is what that looks like. We're not going to stay dead forever after we die on this earth. We will live again. Not only will we live again, but we will live again and never die. We will live eternally. We will live forever, spiritually and physically. We will have physical bodies. Only they're going to be better They're not going to die. We won't age or break down 
or be afflicted with disease or experience pain. And that might be the most groovy truth of all. And it's important that we spend some time on this subject because you can't put too fine a point on this. Because one of the most important aspects of resurrection is that we are, in fact, talking about being remade both spiritually and physically. Contrary to some misconceptions of life after death, we're going to be more than just disembodied spirits that are floating around through the cosmos. Many may have actually previously thought that's what heaven would be like. And they identify with heaven as being like this dream state where we see and we hear and we sort of experience things, but only in this universe of consciousness. You know, the layman's term for that is a a ghost. But we're going to exist not only spiritually, but physically. Just as Jesus had a body and he still has a body, in a physical place, so also will we have a physical body in a physical place, a body that experiences physical reality, that can not only see and hear and think, but can also touch and smell and taste, that will experience the world much as we experience it now. We will eat and drink, we'll run, we'll swim. We'll still climb mountains and play sports. We'll enjoy his creation to its fullest. As John Piper said, God had a purpose in creating our physical bodies in a physical world. Namely, to add the ways his glory is externalized and made manifest. That means that he does it because it brings him pleasure and glory. Because it's something that we can all put our hands on and experience with all of our senses. Now this may be new information for people, or maybe a forgotten or buried headline. The idea that we will exist physically in a physical place after Jesus returns. And it's an appealing one. And it's appealing because it's what we know. It's what we were created to be, and do, and experience. I mean, we could all acknowledge that physical reality is the existential core of what it means to be human. It's what we are, and it's what we long for. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why people identify more with a zombie or a vampire than they do with this invisible spiritual world. Even if they don't like a zombie or a vampire, at least they can relate to that, as bizarre and unnatural as they are. They would prefer it to something that's ethereal or abstract. But a purely spiritual afterlife is honestly one of the great deceptions of this world when it comes to our future, that we would exist as ghost-like vapors floating around in the clouds and maybe even playing figurative harps with figurative fingers. But praise God, his plans for us actually include us in the best imaginable version of us. And it's worth noting that of all the world's major and historical religions, there are only three that teach about this idea of resurrection to a physical life. They're Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Now, it wouldn't surprise us that Judaism would support this because it was the framework, the setup, if you will, for Christianity. It's essentially Christianity without Jesus Christ. 
And Islam also likewise traces its ancestry back to Abraham of the Old Testament and then affirms this idea of resurrection. But the problem with those is in Judaism, it's incomplete because it lacks Jesus Christ. And in Islam, they, it's distorted because they have a misperception of who Jesus Christ is. And that has implications that weaken this teaching of resurrection. But there are lots of religions out there that support a view that people will exist as spirits with some level of consciousness but no physical body. And several religions even propose that people will join this great spirit and forfeit their individual identity to become part of a collective or communal identity. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible clearly teaches a physical afterlife with a physical body. Paul said early in the same letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 6.14, By his power God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. And to the church at Rome, Paul wrote in Romans 8.11, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 26, 19, but your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. The prophet Ezekiel received a vision of God about resurrection. And in Ezekiel 37, verses 4 through 6, he writes, Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Job said in Job 19, 25 through 26, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. Jesus himself spoke openly about the resurrection. He said in John 5, 28 and 29, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. The early church, and even as early as in the second century, they used creeds when they baptized new Christians. And they would ask, do you believe in the Holy Spirit and in the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? It's clear, this is what the Bible teaches And if this is what we believe about our futures, then what do we do with this? How should we respond to that? And for your notes, firstly, we ought to look forward to the future and heaven. We need to look forward to the future and heaven. Because not only do we have the promise of living forever and not dying, but we also have a promise of a physical existence in a physical body to experience physical joys 
and physical pleasures. It's not going to be abstract. It's going to be real. And it's going to be fun. It's not going to be boring. We're going to have adventure. And we'll still get to accomplish and achieve things. And we'll still get to create things and add value. And we'll get to see and hear and touch and taste and smell all of God's creation. And the only difference is it'll be better than ever. It will be beyond our imagination. And it will surpass all of our greatest expectations. The Bible tells us that there are, will be no more tears, no more fears, no more pain, and that we won't die. Yet later in this chapter, Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 54, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. You know, I think that for most of us, even those of us who follow Jesus, we probably have viewed our lives as having some purpose. There might be some that say, well, you some of us are going to accomplish more in our death than we do in our life. But how many of us can relate to this idea of having a purpose after death? Probably not many. And that's a lie. Because that's all wrong. We're going to have an unimaginably greater and more significant future in eternity than we do now. You see, our purpose doesn't end with this life. It starts with this life. We most definitely have significance in eternity. And one of the reasons why we know that is because we're going to have physical bodies there. And why would you need one if there weren't purposes for us? That's awesome. That's groovy. You know, the Apostle Peter speaks of our current mortal bodies as being just mere seeds of what we will become. And saying mere seeds, he's saying you're, gonna, you're a mere fraction, just like a seed is a mere fraction of a tree or a plant or a flower. We now are just a mere fraction of what we will be when we're in heaven and resurrected to eternal life. So, secondly, in your notes, we ought to treat everyone as an eternal being. We need to treat everyone as an eternal being. You know, we often say here at Trinity that everyone is going to live forever somewhere. We all have an eternal destiny. And earlier this morning, Jesus, Jesus spoke in, in one of the passages I rose to you, uh, wrote, uh, read to you. It says, those who have been done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Unfortunately, that means that resurrection does apply to everyone. And for those who are not in Jesus... They'll, be rised, they'll rise to be condemned to an eternity in hell. In his classic book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis wrote, But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors and everlasting splendors. 
He goes on to say that if we were to see someone in their, his or her resurrected state, we would probably be so overcome and overwhelmed that we would be inclined to worship them. The key here is not that, not only that everyone you meet is someone who is created in the image of God, but everyone you meet also has an eternal, significant destiny. And that leads us to the next point, because this should deeply motivate us to share the good news with others. This should deeply motivate us to share the good news with other people. The resurrection to eternal life in in heaven is available to anyone who puts their trust and their faith in Jesus. But how will they place their faith and their trust in Jesus if those of us who know Jesus don't share the reason for the hope that we have inside of us? How would would we be able to believe that we are going to be future, you know, Beings in heaven resurrected to eternal life and not share that with the people around us. If the shoe is on the other foot, wouldn't we want them to share the memo with us? After all, 100% of Christians, past, present, future, all owe a debt of gratitude to someone who shared the truth of God with them. All of us, whether we came to faith as kids or later on in life, we all owe something to someone who took seriously this responsibility to share the good news with others. Now, one of the best ways for us to share that hope in us is our last point, and that is to worship and praise the God who keeps his promises. To worship and praise the God who keeps his promises. Just within the last couple of weeks... Um, my kids and I were having a spiritual discussion on our mini road trip. About to embarrass my, my family, I see. Um, and uh, during this discussion, my son Luke, he asked this question because he said that he was worried that his faith may not be strong enough. Because he didn't know if he would believe in Jesus if he, he wasn't going to get to go to heaven and have eternal life. I think that's a valid concern. It's one that I have. I would dare say that it's a universal concern. After all, would we really believe what we believe about Jesus and about God if, if all there was was just this life? That's all there was, period. We're done. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on that idea because we don't have to. We don't have to because you can't detach the character of God from his promises to us. And using Paul's same logic, if God exists, then he must be good. And if he's good, then he keeps his promises. And he promised us that if we put our trust and faith in him, we'll be resurrected like him to eternal life in paradise forever. You see, we don't have to believe in a God without heaven or eternal life. In fact, it's not possible to do so. It's impossible Because in Christ, we have eternal life. And in eternal life, you have Christ. You can't have it any other way. Because Jesus is life. Now, I know we we read this morning that some people are being resurrected to be condemned, but that's not life. There cannot be life apart from Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you have eternal life. And that's something that no matter who you are, you can hang your hat on 
quite literally. Because in the future that we have, we're going to have a head on a physical body to put that hat on top of. And that is groovy. And that's reason to worship and praise God because he keeps his promises to us. In closing, because we believe that Jesus died and was resurrected to life, we know that he will also resurrect those of us who follow him to a life forever. So let's go out there living, knowing that everyone lives forever somewhere and share the hope that we have in Jesus. Let's pray. While we're in this attitude of prayer, I want to remind you that if you're a follower of Jesus, then this truth should fuel your passion for heaven and for eternity. If you're here this morning and and you don't know where you stand yet on Jesus, I hope this has been an encouragement to you. Maybe this idea of where you're going to go after you die has been a stumbling block to you trusting in Jesus. Perhaps your understanding of this has been so cloudy that it's just kept you from Jesus. And if you went on in on this future with Jesus to a resurrected life forever in a physical body in heaven, I've got good news for you. You don't have to do anything to earn it. All you have to do is right here, right now, right where you're at, tell Jesus that you trust him, that you believe that he's the one that God sent and that you want to trust him with both your present and with your future. I don't want to pressure you or make you feel uncomfortable, but I wouldn't be doing you any favors if I didn't communicate to you and emphasize the urgency of this issue. Because Jesus does keep his promises. He's coming back, and he's coming back soon. That could be 100 years from now. It could be 100 seconds from now. So if that's you this morning, you you want to make that decision, I, I would just ask, well, while we've got our eyes closed, nobody looking around, that you would just raise your hand. Thank you. If you raise your hand, I want to I want to pray for you in just a moment. Um, and if you want to process that with someone, I'd be happy to talk with you afterwards. Uh, or you could seek out Pastor Brad or Pastor Chris, Pastor Thad, anybody else you know here at Trinity. We'd be happy to talk with you about that. Dear Lord, we praise you and we thank you for this truth that we have, that we can hang our hat on, that you have guaranteed our future in heaven, that we have a physical, awesome future to look forward to. And this is something you've promised. So it's going to happen. Lord, I want to ask that you'd be with the person who raised their hand this morning, that you would just bless them and reveal your truth to them. Holy Spirit, you would speak to them and continue to encourage them. Lord, help them as they process this and and to take next steps. And Lord, we thank you that we all have next steps and that includes this wonderful, awesome, physical future in heaven. Lord, we praise you for this truth and we thank you. And in your precious name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.